listening to the jukebox, the most wonderful jukebox you can imagine, in Jackie Lennox's chip shop in Bandon Road. That's when I discovered the most wonderful emporium in the world. That was the beginning of music for me because you could listen to uh, Elvis Presley's King Creole, Ray Charles, what I'd say, Cliff Richard, move it, you know, lots of stuff. Come on, pretty baby, let's move it and groove it. When I was 16 and a half, my aunt and uncle, my mother's sister, Carrie, and her English husband, John, came to stay with my nan and granddad in Galabi Street. And they used to come to Cork every year for a holiday. It was a lot, a lot of pe- people did that, like they'd come from Dagnum or whatever, and they never went abroad. They would always come to Cork for a week or two weeks. And at the end of the fortnight, they took me back with them to London. I don't think there's any real reason why I went. It wasn't sort of like emigration because of unemployment like you have today. It was It was just um, my mother probably just asked my Aunt Carol and um, my Uncle John if, if I could go over with them. And they had a daughter the same age as me, Janice, and um, I went and that was the beginning of me. I landed in Shepherd's Bush. We lived in um, a place called Askew Road, just off the Gold Hawk Road. And I spent a fortnight sitting down in, in the council flat that we lived in, in at Scott Gardens, acclimatising myself to um, my cousin's Elvis Presley records, which I played for hours on end, looking at this wonderful thing called television with Bill and Ben, Flowerpot Men, Trill makes budgies bounce with joy or <laughs> bounce with health or something like that. Ads on the television and my uncle didn't want me hanging around the streets of Shepherd's Bush because he felt, obviously he felt overly protective about me. So within the fortnight, he marched me down to the Youth Employment Centre on Shepherd's Bush Green. I had a, a quick interview. I was sent to the London Electricity Board just a few doors down and I was interviewed there. I went for a medical and it's it's almost laughable to imagine in this day and age where you, you know you you'll be given a month a, a month's notice in advance. But back then, this is how innocent we all were. The London Electricity Board sent out a letter to me on the Thursday. It arrived through my aunt and uncle's letterbox on Friday, informing me that I was to start work at nine o'clock the following Monday as a postboy. I think the football season had sort of just started. Chelsea were playing at Stamford Bridge. Now, I can't for the life of me remember who they were playing. And we went midweek, and it was an evening game, as you'd imagine, a Wednesday night game. That meant it was a floodlit match. And that was the first time I ever saw a floodlit match. And um, this instrumental came on at halftime, and it was the Shadows Apache. And... I don't think that I've ever heard any piece of music as blood-curdling as Apache. Everybody around London who considered themselves cool or hip was wearing black spectacle frames in homage to Hank B. Marvin because Hank B. Marvin of the Shadows, Brian Rankin from Newcastle, he was God. (laughs) 
you'd imagine that that would have been the, the point for me to say, right, I'm going to learn to play guitar. But it didn't. It did, it did something else to me instead. But I've never forgotten th- those magical moments. So I came out and asked my cousin, Joey, I said, look, where, where can I see a band? Because I'm not allowed to go up to the West End. But it's like, where, where would I see a band play? So he, he looked at me and he said, well, he said, there's a dance hall around the corner called Bosley's. And um, you could go there. They run it on a Saturday night. So I thought about it. And the following Saturday, I got all done up in my gear. In my gear at the time was a pair of winkle picker shoes, red nylon socks, a pair of Prince of Wales check dog tooth trousers, skin tight, a pair cardigan, cardigan, wooden buttons, no collar, a nondescript shirt, and over the cardigan was a white Columbo-type mac to the knees, unbelted, and on my head was perched a green Robin Hood hat with a feather. And all I was short to complete the scenario was a pair of Hank B. Marvin spectacle frames. So I went along to this place called Bosley's, a little dance hall in Faroe Road in Shepherd's Bush, Paid three shillings and sixpence to go in. Got in there. Discovered about 30 people in there. They all seemed to know each other. They were all on one side of the floor. This was very different to um, some of the dances that we know in Ireland where you'd have all the boys on one side and the girls on the other. This was totally different. And it was like a youth club in the sense that boys and girls mingled together. But all on the one side of the floor. Jack Lyons was on the other side, standing on my own, looking over at all these people who were looking across at me, wondering, in God's name, who who is this weirdo? I was standing there and wondering, who can I talk to? And people seemed to be so unfriendly towards me. And at the time, I had these complexes about myself. And what I should explain is that when I when I first started working in the London Electricity Board and I told people my name and I said, I'm Jackie, which is the name that my mother called me, my father called me Jackie, my grandmother called me Jackie. They looked at me and said, Jackie, no, 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 mate. Your name's Jack. That's Jackie's a girl's name. You're Jack. So I will be Jack at work and I will go back to um, my aunt and uncle's place in Kellamscott Gardens, back to the little council flat that we had, and I'd be only in the door, and my aunt Carol would say, how did you get on at work today, Jackie? So, unknownst to me, I was building up the schizophrenia thing. So, that was my first complex. My second complex was my accent. When I started in the London Accessory Board, because of the Cork accent, People just assumed that I was from Wales because the, the Cork accent is very, very similar to the Welsh accent because it, it goes up and down and up and down. And I had a lot of trouble trying to tell people that I wasn't from Cardiff or Swansea. I was from Cork. And my third complex was about my height. I was five foot seven and I ached to be six foot. 
I was my father was small as well. All the lineses were small, and I I always wanted to be taller than I was. And I built this thing up inside me, even as a kid. It 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 got to me, and the fourth complex then was my hair. It was a disaster, and it just drove me to despair because my hair was so curly. It was unbelievable, and I always wanted straight hair, and um, so these four complexes about myself. I went to bed at night thinking about them. I woke up in the morning thinking about them and none of them seemed likely to change. So I'm standing there with all these complexes in me looking over at the band. The band, I didn't know who they were. They were dressed in uh, wedding suits with white shirts and ties, four-cornered cardboard handkerchiefs and they were playing everything by the shadows. And they were almost like a kind of a, what you might describe as a Shadows Mark Three or Mark Four. I then discovered, as you do when you're a kid, that it took as much courage to leave as I had taken to come in. And I was waiting for the opportunity to go feeling very, very sorry for myself and cursing that I had ever even entered uh, this establishment, I found myself looking over at the band and I focused on this one guy in the band. He was six foot, he had straight hair, he had a, a nose that was the longest nose I ever saw in my life. It looked like a classical uh, displacement of the face like Rembrandt's beret. He had a guitar on him and I thought, Jesus... That guy, obviously, you know, he's got everything. He's He's got height, his straight hair. He's obviously obviously from London somewhere. And he's probably even got a girlfriend, you know, which was a major bonus. He had everything that I wanted. So at the end of the dance, when the 30 people had loped off into the night, I was still standing there and I walked across the floor and approached him. It was a moment of destiny, in a sense, because I felt that I should go over and just identify myself. And I went over, I put my hand out, he put his hand out, we shook hands. I said, hello, I said, I'm I'm Jack from Shepherd's Bush. And in, in that lovely cockney way that the heavy, he retorted with, hello, Jack from Shepherd's Bush, I'm Pete from Ealing. And that was it. He was Pete Townsend from Ealing Common. And um, that was the beginning of a 50-year friendship. And within a month, I was out in his house where he lived with his, his parents, who were both musicians, in Woodgrange Avenue in Ealing Common. And I arrived out there and um, I decided I'd take him out a gift. And I bought some guitar strings in a, a little shop in King Street in Hammersmith. And I arrived at the door and... Obviously, of Irish background, you know, I, I grew up in a house where my mother kept the key in the door, like a lot of other other people in Cork. We didn't believe in ringing somebody ahead to say, look, is it OK to come out or is it OK to visit? I just decided to uh, arrive at his door and I rang the bell and um, his, his his mother, um, Betty, ans- answered the door and um, she was very amused to find a young Irish lad standing there looking for her son, Pete. So um, I told her my name and she said, well, I said, Jack, I think you, you'd better come in. So I walked in and she made me a cup of tea and Pete looked round the door and was 
pleasantly surprised to see me there. And um, while I was drinking the tea, uh, Pete disappeared for a few minutes and came back and walked into the room and said, Jack, does, um, thank you very much indeed for those guitar strings. Um, by the way, he said, they're acoustic strings. I play electric guitar, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me that you love me, baby, then you say you don't. Tell me that you come on over, then you say you won't. You love me like a hurricane, then you start to freeze. I'll give it to you straight right now, please. Of course, long before the Who, they were called the Detours. And they were a wedding band. They didn't have a lot of gigs. They had a like a half-filled work diary. And Roger Daltrey was the boss of the band. Roger played lead guitar and trumpet. John Entwistle played bass guitar and trombone. Pete was sort of playing a jumbo rhythm guitar. And the drummer was called Dougie Sandham. This is long before Keith Moon joined us. And we had a singer called Colin Dawson. So the singer modelled himself on Cliff Richard. So they were very much a, like a Shadows outfit and they would play most of the Shadows material, some uh, trad jazz, as it was known, using the trumpet and trombone. There was a second vocalist called... Gabby Conley, who specialised in um, country and western songs. And when the band got gigs at places like the American Forces Club in um, Marble Arch, um, he always came along and performed. The only real musician in the band was John Entwistle. Because John played with the Boys' Brigade. He played bugle with the Boys' Brigade in Acton, in West London. They were all from West London. And they started up a little fan club. I think there was something like 60 or 70 members of the fan club. So sometime in 1963, the band got a support slot at a place called St Mary's Hall in Putney. And they supported Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Now, Johnny Kidd and the Pirates was an enormous band. So this was a huge slot to play in. And they would have got the gig through Pete's dad, Cliff Townsend, because Pete's father played in probably the number one dance band in Britain at the time, the Squadroneers. And although there was a big gap between dance band music and what we might have called beat groups, there were still connections along the way. So that night, the five members of the Detours stood looking at Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. Pete just couldn't take his eyes off Mickey Green, the lead guitarist, because Mickey Green, elder brother, of, of course, of Peter Green, was absolutely dynamic on the guitar.
They were very impressed by Johnny Kidd and the Pirates. More so because Johnny Kidd and the Pirates was a quartet. Now the Detours was a quintet. So they decided that they would go from this little rock and roll band with five members to become a proper beat group with just four members. So the decision was made that they would drop Colin Dawson. Pete started learning lead guitar and Roger took over on vocals. They began to get more and more little gigs. They were not well-paid gigs, but they were regular, in, in the sense that um, the name was becoming more and more known. One night, John was, was sitting down at home watching a programme called Thank You Lucky Stars, and a band came on the show called The Detours, and they were from Brighton. So he got in touch with Roger and Pete and said, we'll have to change the name of the band because there's another band called The Detours. So they decided there and then that they would change the name of the band. And uh, they had a meeting. Pete decided that he wanted to call the band The Hair because at the time, this is like moving to 63, the Beatles were coming into the fore and hair was a big thing. A lot of parents were going on about hair and stuff like that, the length of hair. Lots of beatniks around London were wearing long hair and Pete thought that it was a very, very topical name, The Hair. So... He got voted down and Richard Barnes came up with the idea of calling the band The Who, W-H-O, simply because there was only six letters in the name and it would look big on posters. We had an audition with a guy called Chris Parmienter and for some reason he didn't like the way that Dougie Sandham was drumming. Dougie was at least ten years older than us. Doug was a great drummer and... He knew a lot about the business, so he was a good guide to have. But the band sort of caught up with Dougie's ability and Chris took one look at Dougie and saw that he was a lot older than the band and said, you'll have to get another drummer. So there was a lot of discontent in the band because um, John and Roger were friends of, of Dougie and they didn't want him to leave. At the time, if you disagreed with Roger about band policy or what songs they were going to uh, learn off and whatever, Roger would sometimes articulate his disagreement or annoyance with a bunch of fives to the chin. So anyway, it, it, it came to a head where Doug left the band and Keith Moon came along. Keith had been with a band called the Beachcombers from Wembley. So in 64, by the time that Mod had arrived in, in London, the band changed their name then to the High Numbers because we got a manager called Peter Meaden. And Peter Meaden was from Edmonton in South London. And Meaden was looked upon as the King Mod. He was probably one of the sharpest dressers uh, around Soho at the time where a lot of the Mods congregated, go to the clubs in Soho, the, the, the discotheque, the Flamingo, the Scene Club, the Marquee, places like that. And um, Meaden looked at the band and, and saw them as mods. Pete Townsend was already dressing as a mod. So um, the band dressed as, as a mod band and they became the premier mod band along with the Small Faces. 3rd of July 1964, we released a single called I'm the Face. And I'm the Face was actually plagiarised 
by um, Peter Meaden from a song called um, Got Love If You Want It and rewritten in the mod style. The words were pretty cheesy. Fontana released a single. They only pressed about a thousand copies and it went nowhere. By November 1964, we were under new management, Kit Lambert and Chris Stamp. Kit Lambert was the son of the English composer Constant Lambert and Kit had been to Oxford and Chris Stamp was at the other end of society coming from the East End. His brother was the famous Turn Stamp, the actor. And these two, who knew absolutely nothing about managing a band and because they were so unorthodox in their management they came up with the most outrageous and ridiculous ideas of publicity if anything, they were a chemical mix for the band and they were just simply brilliant at managing the Who. So by January 65, we had a single in the charts and um, the rest of it then sort of carried on from there. People try to put us to death Just because we get around we did all right. We had three singles in the charts in uh, 1965. We were number seven in the charts and we still had our residency in the marquee on a Tuesday night. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, this was the extraordinary extravagance of, of, of the Who at the time. Still with our residency at the Marquee and the band were getting something like £20 for playing. And Pete Townsend was smashing a Rickenbacker guitar on stage. That probably cost about £250. Then we had more hits in 1966. Songs like Happy Jack. I was very embarrassed about that song because, you know, it was obviously in reference to me. And I wasn't happy about the song. If anything, I was embarrassed about it because the opening line of the song, Happy Jack wasn't tall, but he was a man. And Jesus, we were back to five foot seven again. And I was trying to get away from this terrible, terrible thing that was in my head about my height, along with my hair, my cork accent, my name. I would always be Jackie. My friends, my contemporaries in London at the time, my mod contemporaries, I'd become Jack. And of course, by 1964, the band were calling me Irish Jack, which I was christened so by our manager, Kit Lambert. So, Pete Thompson writes a song called Happy Jack, right? The opening line is, wasn't tall, but he was a man. One night, we were playing at the Newcastle Audion, and I was talking about Happy Jack. And he was looking at me, and he had this incredulous look on his face. And he, he said, Jack, he said, what did you just say about the opening line? I said, wasn't tall, but he was He said, no, wasn't old, but he was a man. <laughs> so, I mean, I'd never read the words of the song. It, ne- it never occurred to me that I should check on it. Happy Jack wasn't old, but he was a man. He lived in the sand at the island. The kids would all sing, he would take a monkey. So 
so they rode on his head in the Kuriyaki. Songs like Happy Jack and Pictures of Lily and I'm a Boy, they were not like Beatles songs, Moon in June, stuff like that. These were sociological observations and very, very well written. Of course, the only thing about about the bloody who is that you couldn't dance to any of their music. You you couldn't dance to Happy Jack. You couldn't dance to I Can See For Miles. You couldn't dance to Pictures of Lily. I'm a boy. But there were little observations that Pete Townsend had made on life in and around Shepherd's Bush and Acton and Ealing, where, in fact, he'd become almost the songwriting laureate for these areas. And by now, of course, he was the figurehead in The Who, and he'd sort of replaced Roger as the spokesman for the band. Then our first trip abroad was in Paris at the Locomotive Club, and uh, then we, we went to Sweden and Norway. I suppose the biggest break for the band would have been in 67 then, when we got a, a radio series with RKO Radio in New York. It was the Murray Decay show. Murray was a famous New York uh, disc jockey and uh, the show went out all over America on the radio and it was it was a massive gig to get, but it was terrible work. They weren't very happy with it, but as luck would have it, they were only back a few months when they got an unbelievable touring gig with Herman's Hermits, 52 dates all around America, which was extraordinary. Woke up this morning feeling fine There's something special on my mind Last night I met a new girl in the neighborhood Oh yeah Something tells me I'm into something And in the same year then, 67, the band played at um, the Monterey Festival with Jimi Hendrix 68, Pete Townsend was writing Tommy and... Woodstock, of course, in 69. Those three years were pivotal in the successful career of the band, 67, 68, 69. There was an Irish dance hall called the Blarney Stone in Tottenham Court Road, which every other night of the week was an Irish dance hall, apart from Friday night. You'd get people like Pink Floyd in there, um, Soft Machine, and you'd get Liverpool poets in there. And I went up there one Friday night. The place was absolutely bustling, and there was about two or three deep at the counter, and I was in this queue. And this tall guy was in front of me and I was um, trying to get my way past him. And I saw a little bit of a space and I nudged him with my elbow. And he turned around to look who had been so rude as to nudge him in the back. And I looked at him, he looked at me and he said, Good God, he said, Irish Jack, 
And I said, Pete, I said, I can't can't believe it. And of course, it was Pete Townsend. And he was dressed in what I can only describe as a pair of circus trousers. He had like a granny shirt on him with beads and a massive Afghan coat. And it occurred to me that I hadn't seen him in a few months. So I'm standing and I'm speechless looking at him. And he's looking at me. And I said, uh, Pete, I said, you're not a mod anymore. Well, he said, Jack, he said, nobody is. I looked at him and this was the man who'd written my generation. I can't explain anyway, anyhow, anywhere. This was the man who was possibly the, the ace face of mods. That was the night I found out that mod was well and truly dead. I know you deceive me, now here's a surprise I know that you have, cause there's magic in my eyes I can see for miles and miles and miles I didn't consciously make a decision to leave London. I had a, a very good job. It was for a patent and trademark company in um, High Street, Kensington. And I decided to um, come home to Cork for my annual holiday. So I was home a few days and um, I met a friend of mine and I asked him where would I go to a dance. And he suggested that I go to a little dance hall in Crosshaven called um, the Majorca. So I got down to Majorca on the bus, walked in and of course I'm still done up in my uh, mod gear. And I spied this girl on the other side of the floor and... uh, took her out for a dance, and of course I was never any good at small talk. If I had a subject matter to talk about, I could talk all night about it. But small talk, I was just not good at it. I was so tongue-tied and so embarrassed meeting this this beautiful girl and not knowing what to say. She asked me where I was from, and of course I was from London. I had a bit of an accent and stuff, and um, I think she asked me what did I do. And of course I was about to tell her a whopper of a lie that I was the assistant manager of the Pink Floyd and um, when she asked me what did I do I said well have you ever heard of the Pink Floyd and this girl looked at me and she said um, the Pink Floyd uh, no and I thought good God I'm dancing with a girl who's never heard of the Pink Floyd and I thought this girl is like a, a breath of fresh air She's so different to to everybody that I know in London. So discovered that this girl was Mara Kent. Um, We had another dance and um, I took her home. We met the next night. I fell in love with her and we're now married 42 years. I stayed on in Cork and I didn't have a job. On St. Patrick's Day in 1968, I started in CIE. And that was my first day's work as a bus conductor in uh, 1968. The irony of it is that having met my wife in the Majorca ballroom in Crosshaven and having got a bus down to Majorca to see uh, Dickie Rock in the Miami, who had been playing that night that we met, my first day's work with CIE as a bus conductor was to man a bus to the Majorca ballroom in Crosshaven. <laughs> Every day I get to you To get on the bus that takes me to you To I'm so nervous I just sit and 
I went to the Isle of Wight Festival with Mara, my newly married wife, in 1970. And, um, well, I'm now married to the probably the only girl from Cork who saw the Who and the Doors on the same night. And <laughs> that is, that's something. I always, always tease her about it, but it's a, it's a great thing to tell people about. So very few people have, have well, it's, it's ridiculous to say so very few people have, have seen that because there was half a million people at the Isle of Wight. I'm sure there must have been other cock people, but I'm yet to meet them. Ladies and gentlemen, a nice rock and roll band from Shepherd's Bush, London, The It's nice to be able to say that after meeting the band as the Detours in 1962 and now talking about them 51 years later, it's nice to be able to say that thankfully I'm still very much in touch with the band, Pete Townsend, we send emails to each other and I ring Roger Daltrey on his mobile about once every three weeks. The strange thing about it is that we never talk who. It's all about grandchildren. So... It's a lovely way that, after all that time, our friendship evolved into that. Ooh. 